Today I welcome Sheila Akbar, President and COO of Signet Education in the USA. In this episode, we talk about educational entrepreneurship, college admissions, well-being, and changes to education. Sheila, you're the President and CEO of Signet Education. What does Signet Education do? Signet Education is a full-service education support company. So we help teenagers navigate high school and the college process with tutoring, test prep, college admission support, and executive function coaching. And how did you get into being an educational entrepreneur and running a business like Signet? So Signet started in 2005. It was founded by two friends of mine. And I joined in 2010. I was in grad school, finishing my dissertation. I had moved back to uh, the Boston area and I joined them just as a tutor. But my previous experience in business and in education really helped them build new infrastructure, hire and train new people and kind of grow the business. And so very quickly, I became part of the administrative team. And then in 2013, I became director of education. In 2017, I became president and COO. So I really fell into it completely accidentally. Um, I have kind of a twisty career path, let's say. It's definitely nonlinear. But as I was finishing my graduate program, I started tutoring on the side because graduate school in the US, especially in the humanities, does not pay very well. So I was tutoring and I really enjoyed it. And uh, this friend had started Signet. And so I joined him. And like I said, my prior experiences, building financial models, training people, hiring people, looking for efficiencies and ways to standardize and to grow a business really came into play. It was lucky that I had those skills and lucky that I fell into a business that needed somebody with those skills. So I just sort of started doing it. And before I knew it, I became an owner myself. And now I'm sort of the public face of Signet. And tell me, how do we tune ourselves in in order to discover what we want to do, because that's part of what the discovery process is. Otherwise, it just becomes a conveyor belt to an education that you're being forced down because of where you are at school and and maybe what your parents and grandparents did. Exactly. I use that conveyor belt metaphor all the time. Students are, you know, they start. I mean, I just sent my son off to school. He's five years old. Why do I have to go to school today? They do it because we tell them they have to. And at some point, hopefully, they start to enjoy it. They find things that motivate them. But without tuning in, as you said, it's always something you're doing for somebody else. And that was really my journey as well. I was doing it because of my parents' expectations. And then there was a little voice that I started paying attention to that told me, hey, this thing that you're doing, this is really your dad's dream. And I didn't know what to do with that voice for a long time until I finally couldn't ignore it. I had come to a point in my education where I was going to become a doctor. I was about to register for the MCAT, which is the big med school admissions test that we take here in the US. I could not bring myself to register. And I was, why am I hesitating? I've worked so hard. I've done all of the pre-med requirements. Why at this moment am I hesitating? And I think I knew it was because this is the point of no return. If I took that test and I did well, I would be going to med school and there would be no reason for me not to go because, you know, I've done all the things. At that moment, I I realized this is not what I want to do with my life. I don't know what I want to do with my life. Uh, So I uh, decided not to apply to med school and I sort of floundered for a little bit. And I kept coming back to this poetry 
And then I realized, oh, maybe I should go study the poetry. So I went back and I did a master's and then eventually I did a PhD. And in that process, I kept coming up against walls, turns in the maze that I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to find my way out of this. You know, what have I gotten myself into and how do I find my way out? And I kept tuning back into, well, who are the people who inspire me? Who are the people who show me how I want to be in the future? And what would they do in this moment? And really what that turned into is a what would I do in this moment eventually? Because I was aiming to emulate certain values and qualities of people who inspired me. And I'm not talking like, you know, Michelle Obama or you know, some famous person. I'm talking about actual people that I interacted with in my life that I said, you know what, that person has integrity or that person is always kind or that person is very patient before they respond. And I realized those are things that I wanted. So very concrete real life examples of qualities that I sought to emulate. And as I tuned more and more into what those values are, I became more clear on what I wanted to do, what was a fit for me, what was not a fit for me, and also how to pursue it because I had these role models to look at. And you talk about values and obviously the big kind of navigation that we're looking at is, you know, how do you get through that and make choices based on a values-based framework? It's not always easy. So how can students do this? You know, part of having a values-based framework is also having a clear set of goals. If you can evaluate every opportunity that comes to you by thinking about, does this serve my goals and does this opportunity fit within my values, then you're not going to go wrong. You know, a lot of people think you have to be very strategic and you're so laser focused on your goal that you can't be distracted by these other things. But I always say you have to be a mix of strategic and opportunistic. We can have all the plans we want, but life doesn't always go our way. So you have to be able to, on the spot, make a decision, I will take this job, or I will have this conversation with that person, or I'm going to do this project in this other way, just because that's the way the universe works. But if you can stay connected to who you want to be in any moment, right, how you're going to behave, that's really what your values tell you. And so if you can think about that, using those values as almost a filter for is this an opportunity I should pursue, whether that's a job, a class, a relationship, anything, travel opportunity. If it fits within your values and either takes you a step closer toward your goal or at least not further away from your goal, it's probably something worth considering. Who do you deal with mainly? Is it the students or do the parents come to you or do the schools come to you? I mean, how does it work? Because obviously a lot of the time the students are led in the direction because of where they are. So how do you let students know that AU exists and but there is another way? Yeah. Well, we do work a lot with uh, students directly. Obviously, that's the majority of our work. But it's often the parent that is calling us, feeling that they, they wish there were another way. Maybe they went on the conveyor belt themselves and they see their child doing the same thing. And they don't want that for them. Or... They see, especially in today's age, their child struggling with anxiety or depression or overscheduled, not getting enough sleep. They want them to have a healthier experience of their education. It is very much a pressure cooker. So parents will come to us, you know, seeking out some advice. Schools also work with us, you know, when we can come in and give talks about, 
here's another way to think about your education. Or uh, one of the metaphors I like to use is um, school kind of gives you all these puzzle pieces, but it doesn't tell you there's a picture on the box that you can put all these pieces together. And actually in life, you get to decide what that picture is. But no school curriculum in the United States is actually telling students that. They're just saying, here's all the algebra you need to know. Here's all the history you need to know. Now go off to college and do something. But nobody tells them how to put all those pieces together in a way that's meaningful for them. You know, there are a couple of career paths out there that students often get pushed towards, but they're still always thinking, you know, how many times do we hear a kid say, well, I'm never going to use X subject in my life. They really think there's a disconnect and they feel that disconnect very viscerally between what they're studying in school and what real life is. So if you can kind of help them tune into a sense of purpose and help them see what all of this education is for and how to put the pieces together in a meaningful way, they do have um, an increased sense of agency. Schools, parents, students all want that, but mostly it's parents that come to us. So let's talk about college admissions because that's the big thing here. So, you know, if students come to you and parents come to you because one of their children, a student is looking you know, at doing something different. Is it always college or are there options where they go, actually, it's not the right trajectory for you? Or is yours all about, you know, it doesn't matter. We're going to find out where best to go into college as opposed to going and working with a tech firm and you want to be a coder, then start at 18. I mean, I'm very open to that and very supportive of that. I think the majority of our clients however, are a little uncomfortable with that. There is this prevailing myth that everybody needs college to succeed in life. And I think we are coming to a time where that's not necessarily true. Technology is changing the world so quickly that jobs that maybe we once thought were stable, jobs that you needed a college degree in order to do, well, you don't need them anymore because an AI is going to do it faster and cheaper than you ever could. I think that that is a big question for people right now. Is college necessary for everybody? And I think the clear answer is no. And certainly not every student needs to go to college as it is now, that sort of traditional four-year university experience. There are a lot of places that are experimenting with different ways of doing college. It may still include, you know, living somewhere with a group of students, but maybe it's all project-based or it's not even an experiment anymore. There's so many schools that have these very successful co-op programs where you work for a semester and that's part of your education. And a lot of those things make a lot of sense. And of course, all around the world, people do university education differently. But back to your question, certainly there are some students for whom college is just not the right fit for how they learn or what they want to do with their lives, or it's not the right time. So we do advise a lot of students around taking gap years and looking at other opportunities before college starts. There are many students who will be very successful going to a vocational program, learning to be, you know, an electrician or a plumber or a general contractor. I mean, I just had some plumbing work done on my house and they make a good amount of money. (laughs) But there is um, a desire for status and prestige that is driving, I think, a lot of the conversations around college, which forces also a lot of students into a very specific kind of college, an extremely selective college that has a brand that is, you know, recognizable to who knows who. And do you think we're ever going to shift that prestige? I mean, we have it here in the UK. I mean, people want to come to a British university that's ranked top 10 in the world. And, you know, parents, you know, I've got 
I've got four children. Um, one's already at a top UK university. One is about to finish his high school and about to go off and to another top one. And I have to admit, you know, just because of choice, it's where you end up. You just kind of go, I just know that it opens doors by being accredited to a prestige at the moment. But I don't believe it's the way it should go forward. But do you feel we could ever get away from the fact that you want to feel like you're going to a notable prestige, don't you? I completely understand that. I mean, when I was growing up, my parents only wanted me to go to Harvard because when they grew up in Bangladesh, that was an American college they knew of. And they wanted their relatives there to know that I had made it, right? And obviously there are 4,000 colleges in the United States. I could have gone to any of them and gotten a great education, probably still end up doing the thing I'm doing now. I won't pretend that going to Harvard didn't open doors for me. It certainly did. So, you know, while we still live in this sort of prestige capital society, it's helpful. But the fact remains that those colleges maintain their prestige by being selective. And so not everybody can get in. And the problem, I think, is not in pursuing prestige. It's in what happens if you don't get into a prestigious program. It's great. If you can go to one of those, amazing. But we have to recognize not everybody's going to get into one. Not everybody belongs at one. And there are still really amazing opportunities to get a good education all over the place. There is this sort of false premise of scarcity that is perpetuated. And so I think that's one of the problems. But at the same time, this is not a simple issue. I think it is a systemic problem. It is tied up in capitalism. It is tied up in all sorts of other structures in our society. And so it's going to take a systemic solution. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Is there a secret recipe for getting into the college of your dreams? Yeah, there's no formula, but there is a secret. I actually just wrote about this on my LinkedIn newsletter. I believe that the secret is actually focusing on the process more than the result. If we get obsessed with, oh, I want to go to this specific college, well, we end up shutting off certain opportunities, trying to turn ourselves into what we think that college wants. And maybe we're denying ourselves the opportunity to, you know, find our true passion, ignite some spark, really use our strengths. But if we focus on the process, and in this case, that means getting the most out of your education, learning about yourself as much as you are learning about the world, learning how to get the things you want done, right? Set a goal, figure out how to get there. Learn how you best organize your day, right? Not just, oh, I'm getting by, but really just thriving in every moment pursuing meaning and curiosity wherever you can. If you do all of those things to the utmost of your ability while you're in high school, you will be a really amazing college candidate. And the college that wants a student like you is going to be shining through all of that. You're going to be shining through all of the applications for them because you've done all of those things, not to look good for this college, but for yourself. And that really does come across. I wanted to ask you whether or not the college admissions scandal that was heavily publicized here in the UK, around the world, and obviously it's become a Netflix series, did that sort of positively impact your business in terms of where people go, actually, look, we've got to get away from 
this entitlement and the rich getting richer and finding back doors in? Or did it hinder your business because everyone was shining a bit of a kind of a tinted lens at anybody that was involved in college admissions? So I think it did the former. It helped quite a bit. I remember when I started running our admissions business in 2011, it was so hard to find former admissions officers to do this work. They felt it was the dark side, even though we're members of a national industry group that they are also part of that has you sign off on a code of ethics. And it's, you know, all very much on the up and up. But after the Varsity Blues scandal, and I don't know that that was the turning point, but it was certainly sort of a milestone. It's not hard to find somebody who wants to do this work. I think families are much more accepting, open to the idea that, well, a lot of people hire a private consultant, right? You've got your high school college counselor and they may be great for some parts of the process. And, and some people get lucky and they have a great high school counselor for all of the parts of the process. But just knowing the numbers, how many students each counselor is responsible for, there's no way you're going to get the kind of personalized attention that you would from a private consultant. And so people seek us out for that sort of thing. So it has helped our business tremendously just by bringing awareness to the fact that this is an industry that exists. There are bad actors and there are good actors. And so, you know, find a good one and then you'll be okay. The issue around mental health and, you know, supporting anxiety and worry and stress with students, because it's a big deal, right? They've worked all their young lives to get to this point on the back of a huge pandemic, which impacted them too. How do we deal with that? And how do we make sure that we're supporting students in the best way that's going to help them thrive in whatever they go and do? And it's not just about the academics. It's got to be that moral and an emotional support too. I will say I do not have all the answers here, but I can tell you the small part that we try to play is in meeting students where they are. As a company, we have a set of values that we live by, we hire by, we even select our clients by. If we don't think a client is going to respect a certain value of ours, we say, hey, we're not the best fit. One of those values, and I think the most important one of those values, is teach students, not subjects. So we're not here just to fill your brain with facts and formulas. We're here as a partner to the student. So that means understanding all of the things that are going on in their life that may or may not impact their academics or their motivation or their energy levels, their ability to focus, their ability to remember things. You know, I was just talking to a tutor who has a student who she knows the math for her class, but when she gets to the test, it just disappears. And so we're bringing in one of our um, coaches, who is also a mindfulness coach, to help her be in the right mental mindset to do her best on the exam. When this client came in for tutoring, they certainly didn't think they would be working on mindfulness. If we can really understand what's happening for a student, where their process breaks down, where the roadblocks are, we can meet them there and support them with what they need. So it's about kind of asking questions, maintaining a very open and trusting relationship, and never judging. We see everything, you know, a student's grade, whether they did their homework or they didn't do their homework, any of this is data. It's not a point for judgment. It's saying, oh, okay, you were not able to meet you know, this deadline. Let's understand why. And let's understand what we're going to do next time so that you can meet it. And our students are never in trouble with us. And I think that's one of the reasons they feel like they can share with us what's really going on. And then we can help them get the support they need. 
How young do you start working with students in preparing themselves for life after high school? Well, really, (laughs) growing up is about preparing yourself for life, right? But we really start with students in seventh or eighth grade and then move on from there. So these are, you know, young teenagers, 13 year old, usually 13, 14, who come to work with us. And of course, we're not starting with, okay, what do you want to be? And how do we prepare you for your life? It's really just about what's fun for you. What makes you excited about this topic? Or what do you like about school? What do you love about that teacher? Or what do you love about your friends? And helping them kind of build that understanding to a place where we can maybe say, oh, well, you really love helping people. You know, there are lots of professions where that's the goal. Let's talk about some of them. How can we explore them together? And so it's very gentle and it never feels like somebody is putting a framework on you. It's let's pull this out of you. The answers are already in there. And do you get involved in jobs and you know, careers that some of these students may be interested in, because that's a big, big deal. Because, you know, you kind of need to know what you're interested in. Also, you need to know what probably jobs exist. Yeah. Well, you know, the U.S. college process is a bit different than the U.K., right? You get to go to college and explore a little bit before you have to declare a major. And even then, once you've declared a major, you're still taking classes in other subjects because the college may require it. You know, that's why they call it liberal arts. It's very free. As opposed to, you know, in the UK, you need to know before you go to university and you can't really change course when you're there. So over here, it's not as important for a student to understand their exact career path or their academic major before they apply or even as they start college. It's helpful, but some people just need a little more exposure before they can start making those decisions. So we do work on ways that they can get that exposure and learn about different careers. And wherever possible, you know, we're happy to help with our network. My tutors have PhDs and master's degrees in really every field you can think of. So there's usually somebody on my team that a student can talk to about, you know, what is it like to have a career in this <laughs> or that, whatever it is, they'll get real answers. And then we also do a good amount of graduate school placement. So we work with students on academic masters, PhDs, med school and law school. So we can help them prepare for those professional schools and think about what kind of work experiences may help them in those applications. So in, you know, many cases, we're helping with resumes and cover letters and, you know, preparing for interviews as well. I want to ask you, I mean, it might sound like a random question, but, you know, what role can employers play in taking the pressure off working parents? Because there is an added pressure here with the amount that parents need to work to afford to send them to a good school potentially. And then to support their children through college. Well, I take it back to first principles. The reason most adults are working is to provide for their family, whether they're children or not, right? That's why we sell our time for money is to put food on the table, put a roof over our heads, pay for education and uh, other opportunities. And employers all think, okay, when a new parent is a part of our workforce, we should support them. We should subsidize childcare. We give time off. You know, we're flexible with working hours, things like that. But the job of raising a child, you know, this does not stop when they are three or four and no longer need that kind of childcare support or, you know, maternity leave or paternity leave, whatever it is. It doesn't stop when they start school. It doesn't stop when they graduate (laughs) from high school or even college. It just never stops. I think there are a lot of things that employers can actually do. Employers, I think to their credit, have been very aware of the mental health strain on their workers 
caused by the pandemic and caused by our general, you know, worship of productivity in our late capitalist society. In most cases or many cases, there are mental health supports available to employees. But what we've seen is that a lot of these parents have mental health challenges because they're managing the mental health challenges of their children. And that is not something that an employer directly supports, maybe through a health plan or something like that. They could, but those resources are often not available to working parents, resources for their kids. And I'm talking about all kinds of resources, therapists, courses, just information, a sounding board, a parent coach. And then education, I think it becomes a big part of it, especially with the pandemic when school became remote, parents became homeschool teachers as well as employees and parents. And they had to manage their child's education in a way that they hadn't needed to before. And many of them have not gone back to the old way of just we'll send them to school and we don't have to deal with it. They're very, very involved in their students' educations now, and it takes up a lot of their time and mental capacity. So if employers can provide even just information, connection to resources, even subsidizing some of those in many cases, I think that will really help kind of stabilize the stress loads of these workers. Yeah, and hopefully employees, and we've certainly seen it, is that they're more adaptable, more flexible now to the employees in terms of, you know, in terms of days, working from home, working remotely, hours they work, just so parents can be available and present for their children at critical times because there's nothing worse than your child, you know, leaving childhood, becoming an adult and you looking back and going, I wish I'd worked more. You know, it's not that. So yeah, the last few years have definitely shone a light on what all parties could be bringing to the table. It's humans first, right? That's what we've seen. So what do we do in shaping these young people? Sheila, I want you to look into your crystal ball as we wrap up. Let's look at what the future of education would look like in 2050. Tell me what would stay and what do you think will go and what needs to go? Well, I hope it looks very different. And I think because of the changing needs of the workforce, I think it will be very different. I think in the nearer term, we will see more in the United States, state universities and community colleges becoming tuition-free or guaranteed admission for residents of those states. I think there are going to be a lot of barriers removed to public education. I also think education is going to shift from preparing for a specific career to building skills. I think as we face down this technological revolution, the only thing that will stay within you know, the human realm, I think, are certain skills. There are a lot of things that a computer is going to be able to do, a robot will be able to do in manufacturing or what have you, but there are certain skills that we will still need humans for. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.